Welcome to the Partnernomics Show, where industry thought leaders discuss the hottest topics in partnerships, ecosystems, and innovation. The Partnernomics Show is brought to you by Iolite Solutions, a product incubator specific to Salesforce. Now here's the host of the Partnernomics Show, Mark Brigman. Mr. Bob Moore, good to see you, sir. How are things going today? Hey, Mark. Uh, I am doing great. It's great to talk to you again. Hey, so uh, thanks for agreeing to be a contributor on the Partnernomics Show. I'm looking forward to having you share your insights with us. Uh, Bob, for those folks that might not know much about Crossbeam or you or your background, I'd love for you just to take a couple minutes and share with the audience, you know, Bob Moore and, uh, and Crossbeam. Yeah, happy to. Um, I co-founded this business back in 2018 uh, with my partner, Buck Ryan. Um, and he and I had worked together on some previous companies uh, in the data analytics space. So uh, I was the co-founder CEO of a business called RJ Metrics. And then after that, uh, co-founded a company called Stitch Data. Uh, and both of those companies were a lot nerdier than Crossbeam was. We were way more kind of in the weeds of data science and data infrastructure. But we did run into this problem that was just kind of eye-opening for us, which was anytime we wanted to collaborate with other businesses that were outside of our company lines, it was almost impossible to do so in a data-driven way. Uh, even answering really simple questions like, how many customers do we have in common with our partners? Or uh, you know, are our sales reps trying to sell to any of the same companies that their sales reps are trying to sell to? Uh, was kind of met with uh, blank stares and data compliance problems and data quality problems. And, you know, the, the best solution anyone could come up with was emailing a bunch of out-of-date spreadsheets around and, and, you know, kind of crossing your fingers and hoping it worked. And it just seemed antiquated. It seems so different than how advanced sales and marketing and customer success and finance and people and everything else had become in the, the latest wave of SaaS applications. So, uh, yeah, the vision for Crossbeam after we, so we sold RJ Metrics uh, to Magento, it's part of Adobe now, we sold Stitch to Talend, uh, and part of the vision for Crossbeam was, hey, what if we can actually use the tools of the modern data stack and leverage the maturity of the API economy and just build something completely new that's never been done before? And that new thing is Crossbeam, and it basically functions almost like an escrow service for data uh, that sits in between companies that are partnering with each other and provides this secure, compliant, third-party environment where you can both connect your system of record, whether it's Salesforce or HubSpot or a data warehouse or a Google Sheet or anything else, and we take care of everything that's hard. We ingest the data, we standardize it and transform it. We keep it up to date. We have an awesome matching algorithm that can figure out where things overlap. And then we give you all of these tools and applications that allow you to consume the results downstream, whether that's just using our report builder in our own UI or pushing it back into Salesforce or any of the dozens of tools that exist in our, our partner cloud ecosystem. So um, really just trying to you know, bring the partnerships universe uh, up to parity and beyond with the rest of the tech stack that's that's affected go to market in the last ten years. Yeah, man, you, you guys are you guys are doing such an awesome job. I know a ton of our clients are, are using your solution, and man, it's just really transformed, revolutionized the way that they do business. Man, so keep up the awesome work. Thank you, thank you. We just hit a big milestone. We just crossed seven thousand companies, uh, which is is kind of mind blowing. Uh, and I think we have something like. Uh, 300 of the SaaS 1000 are on there. We've got uh, several dozen publicly traded companies now. It's um, uh, For a while, it felt like we were kind of pushing a boulder up a hill, but I think uh, <laughs> now we're starting to think about, like, let's use the fact that we've got this awesome network to create a, a whole lot of value for a whole lot of people. So it's exciting. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. All right, man, we're ready to jump in and start firing up some questions. 
Let's do it. All right, man. So let me uh, get uh, get the clock ready to go here in just a second. Um, so, Bob, privacy. You know, I came from the world of mobile, came from the world of telecom, and man, it was all about privacy, privacy data, and all this sort of stuff. And I know it's only gotten more important uh, as the years continue to to evolve. But I want to ask you. So are, is a corporate data policy concerns, is that a barrier to account mapping software similar to what a crossbeam would provide? Yeah, I, this is such an important question because the, uh, the answer ends up solving for a lot more stuff than just like what sits in a privacy policy, right? Like there's this really natural extension you can start asking privacy questions and very quickly you get into uh, questions about uh, GDPR and CCPA and kind of the compliance aspects of that privacy world. Then you get even further and you get into more fundamental questions about your business, which is just like, how do you think about trust and how is that trust defined and how do you verify and maintain that trust? Uh, you know, whether it's a, a legal question or just an operational, like, how do you want to do business question? Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, so to answer your question directly, right? Like, 100% yes, like people's corporate private data, uh, uh, privacy uh, concerns in and around data are very much at the front of many of the conversations that we have with companies. But what's really important to remember is that really what we're doing here is creating a level of standardization, control, and transparency around who can see what and under what circumstances. Um, and there are a lot of inputs to how that stuff gets governed. In a lot of businesses, things like personally identifiable information just completely off limits. One of the cool things about Crossbeam is you can kind of turn these dials and say, look, for this particular company, there's going to be absolutely no PII whatsoever, right? We're only going to share information at the business level. For another company where we have a different style of partnership agreement and maybe different governing law, we're going to share a little bit more, uh, but it's going to fall under this fair use provision of our partner agreement. Um, you know, different companies have different styles around how they approach this. The importance is that people who own their data continue to own their data. This is not a, a marketplace where you're going and selling people's data. It's not a co-op where you just, everybody throws it in a big pile and you get some kind of aggregated thing out. Every single iota of data get, that gets shared with another party, the person sharing it has complete control over how it gets shared and complete transparency over what uh, is set up and configured. And because of that, what this allows companies to do is to go from this kind of shadow IT spreadsheets are being emailed around. There's not a lot of visibility and control around how data might be leaking out of their organization to a place where they can actually centralize it, control it, and apply their own governance around it. So ironically, this thing that in a first conversation might, because it's got the word data sharing close to it, right, it might sound like a scary thing, actually ends up having the opposite effect. And we get a lot of legal and security and compliance teams that love this stuff because it is providing them with a governance layer uh, around how partner collaboration actually happens. Almost seems like, or you have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but almost seems like, uh, you know, using your credit card back in 2000, uh, you know, online. It's like, oh my God, you know, I'm scared to death to put my credit card online because there's, you know, some, some bad people on the other side and you're just scared to death of it. And now, I mean, how many trillions of dollars get, uh, you know, flow, flow across the, the wires and the, and the glass and the fiber each day do you see that kind of being a similar thing uh, as it comes to companies and corporate policies uh, adopting, you know, more, just being more open-minded, I guess. It's almost, it's going to become a necessity, right? It won't even really become a question, It'll become more of a necessity to, to share information with uh, with partners in order to collaborate more effectively, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, what's been great to see here is that, like, this is, 
less a revolution and more just a realization uh, of what has already been in place. Like it's exceedingly rare, like exceptionally rare that we have clients that actually need to make edits to their, you know, their privacy policy or their data processing addendum or their partner agreements in order to get comfortable using Crossbeam. Because if you look at how those things are structured from day one by default in terms of just general best practices, typically, uh, there are ways that if the appropriate controls are applied and the appropriate agreements exist with partners, then all of the collaboration that we're talking about here fits within the confines of those existing agreements and those existing understandings that, that folks have with their, their customers and their users. So um, again, it's every, every company kind of has to come at this, you know, with their own view and, and make their own assessment. But what's been really encouraging to us is that you know, this, uh, this hasn't been something where it feels like a wall we need to climb or a thing we need to sidestep. We've just gone head on right into it uh, and said, look, this is, uh, yes, please bring, bring your legal team or your compliance team into the conversation early. Because what we end up realizing is, uh, you know, the, the before times and the after times of using Crossbeam, people are always in a way better position from a, a trust and compliance standpoint afterwards, because again, they're putting the control back in the hands of, of their own compliance teams. All right, so fire up question number two. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, question reset two. So the, this is one I got. I got one, got for, one you. for me. All right, let's hear it. Uh, which is around. So I know you. Uh, you know, you're a big thinker on this. You talk about it a lot. Um, professional certifications versus college degrees. Uh, and as we view more and more, you know, even at, at uh, Crossbeam here, right? Like we've we've stripped away requirements around uh, college degrees from from most, if not all, of our positions at this point. I think we take a a much closer look at recent experience and uh, kind of those proof points. And I'm wondering, do you think we're going to see a world where these professional certifications end up uh, just replacing college degrees wholesale at, at some point in the future? Yeah, man, such, a, such an interesting question. Short answer is yes, I think so. You know, I mean, whenever I think back to, I mean, what universities provide, it kind of is that third party objective stamp of rigor. And I think as soon as we get uh, the private sector where, where we kind of stand up and we agree that there is some sort of a body that can validate the rigor of different certifications or different experiences, we'll definitely see that. You know, I think just the pace of business, the pace of education, the pace mm -hmm. of learning, universities aren't really designed, in my humble opinion, to be able to keep up with that. Imagine coming out of college today with a marketing degree. I can almost guarantee you the students can teach the professors more about marketing than the professors can. You know, I, I wholeheartedly believe this. I've been an adjunct for 23 years at four different universities. I understand and I see what, at least in the business side, what business students are taught. And I've also seen and lived in the world of professional uh, development with professional certifications and see the, just the, the intense education that goes into those different programs and in my opinion there's there's not really a lot of comparison yeah it's an interesting point i used to uh uh talk a lot about this idea that you know i went to school i got a, i got an engineering degree and um worked as an engineer for a little while but uh i, I always say that the thing that came out of my college experience was not what i learned but uh, how I learned how to learn, uh, right? Like the, you mentioned the, the rigor part, right? It's a combination of work ethic and also like when to work smart versus when to work hard and how to work in a group setting. And I do think it's all those skills that have kind of been 
refined over the years of working in professional environments and kind of getting acclimated to, to those spots. And like, I can't tell you the last time that I, I did a differential equation, right? It was probably, uh, it was probably in college in my junior, senior year, but uh, you know, something about going through that experience has, has left this indelible mark on, on the way in which I just work and, and think about getting things done. So um, yeah, if you can replicate that in other environments, uh, you know, going into a quarter million dollars worth of debt uh, when you're 22 years old might might not always be the best trade off there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, time will tell. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly not saying that there is no use for a college degree, right? My daughter, I mean, I just sent her off to college. You know, I think there's absolute, you know, there's there's value in that. But man, there's there's a lot of education. I think there's a lot of education that happens the day somebody graduates and then they join corporate America, they join an organization, they join a not for profit, they kind of join the the real world. That's really where the, the the learning curve gets gets pretty steep, and I think uh, educators, more formal educators, need to do a better job of of preparing and kind of bridging that gap and, and getting folks uh, the, the education that they need so they can be successful. All right, we're ready to uh, fire on to the next question. Got one for you. I definitely would like to get uh, get your take on this one. That is, should the partnering team report to the sales lead? or to another executive. So I had a chance to sit in, I think it was last week, uh, your guys' readout from Crossbeam, ton of awesome insights in there. Definitely recommend people check that out. But I know this is a topic that you guys hit there. So I'd love to, to get your, your take on this as far as like reporting and org structures. Yeah, totally. So we did, the thing you're talking about is the State of the Partner Ecosystem Report, which we just released. It's free. Uh, if you Google it or head to the resources part of the, the Crossbeam site, you can download it. It's this big, almost 100 page long report based on a huge survey that we do of, of hundreds and hundreds of partner professionals every year. And one of the things we talk about is org, org structure and org chart. And um, we do see this continuing trend where uh, the most common place that partner teams report into is the sales or the revenue organization. Uh, and in second place is the CEO's office. And then you start to get into marketing and product and the rest of kind of the, the long tail there. Um, you know, I think this is this is representative of a bigger trend that actually gets me excited, which is uh, this convergence of the idea of tech partnerships and channel partnerships. So, you know, when you talk about channel partnerships, historically, you're talking about partnering with other companies that are going to help you go to market. They're, they're selling or reselling your product. They're delivering services that help get your product implemented or supported. Uh, you know, they're affiliates or generally they're not other product companies, right? And when you're doing that kind of collaboration, super, super logical that that piece of the partnerships world will roll into sales. It's very like, it's directly accretive to sales. The work that gets done there will move the sales numbers forward, makes a ton of sense. This whole other arm of partnerships that has emerged in the last, call it 15 years, as the API economy has, has shown up. And, uh, you know, there's this opportunity for deeper technical integrations between products that don't require multi-million dollar investments or joint ventures has created the world of tech partnerships. And this is, in the old parlance, this is ISV partnerships, right? This is a, a tech company and another tech company, not a channel partner, teaming up to do something uh, collaborative that where one plus one equals three. In that world, in the original days, a lot of those organizations reported into product because uh, there was a, a lot that was going on there related to actual engineering and product development. Many reported into marketing because it was viewed as something that would do a lot more to attract people to the top of the funnel uh, because it would be about awareness and compatibility with these other audiences. But as the tech partnership world has gotten more and more mature and tools like Crossbeam have kind of helped usher this along, 
the motions that exist between tech partners to help go to market together just start to look more and more and more like channel partnerships do from a measurement, from an attribution, from a how the sales reps and teams are involved, and frankly, for how much it's a force multiplier for the entire revenue stack. So uh, I think what is happening here is we're seeing a lot of these tech partner organizations get pulled into a larger partnerships umbrella and that umbrella tending to report into the sales organization over the long term, because even tech partnerships are a revenue driver and a force multiplier for co-selling, cross-selling, uh, account mapping, collaborative account building, and, and things like that. So it's exciting to us. We, we see it in the data. It's, it's happening in real time here. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting how, you know, like, whenever people say, like, the partnering team, because I see there's, there's lots of different functions of, of partnering. And as you mentioned, there's lots of different places and lots of different ways that, that, that it plays in there. But I think one of the... I guess the concerns or landmines that we actually commonly see is whenever a, a partnering group reports into or they're led by somebody that's highly transactional, they're, they're trying to knock down this quote on a month by month basis. If they're not given the latitude to work their long term plans, because partnering, yeah. especially when you're talking about uh, more of the product or solutions type. Uh, where you're building solutions that aren't going to be sold next month, they're actually going to be sold next year at some, you know, in, in some organizations. Um, those those groups and teams need to be led by leaders that are more long term focused as opposed to the short term focused, because then the folks never get the time to to work on the long time. You're always working on the the near. Yeah, and I think that this is where great leaders you know, tend to have these entrepreneurial tendencies, because I would even put the bar higher than that. I'd say it's it's not that it's short-term or long-term, it's the ability to context switch between the two constantly, because really an amazing partnership leader will be effective at creating the evidence around partner attribution and what was the influence that a partner ecosystem had on sales in the last quarter and the quarter coming up and being able to kind of be there in the weeds and speak the language of the people who are motivated by that quarterly quota attainment and kind of the, the driving force of the cadence of the business that, that drives growth, but also not lose sight of the idea that you're constantly playing for that outcome that's going to be two years from now. Uh, and the idea that as much as hitting your sales goals feels hard now, they're going to be double next year. Uh, and you need to kind of tee these things up a year in advance. So this is a, a hallmark of great entrepreneurs and founders is their ability to, to do both of those things at once and kind of play this zoom in, zoom out game and almost just run this optimization problem where you make sure you're never too much in a local maximum, whether it's short-term or long-term, and, and you're kind of playing for the, the big game. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing, uh, it's not super common yet, but we are starting to see this title of like chief partnerships officer or even chief ecosystems officer, which I don't love the co-op <laughs> acronym, but uh, I'll take it. Uh, and, and those things exist exactly for that reason, right? It's folks that report yeah. directly to the CEO that can kind of abstract away from the the time-oriented constraints of these other groups yeah. inside the business. And that, that's not a normal skill set. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's definitely one where you got to, speaking of, you know, professional experience, uh, <laughs> outstripping what you can learn in a classroom. That's, that's a big one. Awesome. Um, but, hey, speaking of uh, the State of the Partner Ecosystem Report, we had a data point in there I, I wanted to ask you about, which is um, one of the things we found that was just jaw-dropping was that, more than half of the people that we surveyed, uh, which is a pretty big, like representative group, 
switched companies in 2021. Like, the, you know, we talk about the great resignation, we talk about all of these things in a more macro level, but more than half of partner professionals switching jobs in that single year. I just wanted to get your, get your take on that. You know, do we think that's a trend that's here to stay or is there something special about what just went on in the last year in this space? Yeah, man, it'll really be interesting to see how this plays out over the next several years. You know, I think there's a lot of different things that, uh, that are playing in here. One of those just being... I think the labor pool for seasoned partnering professionals was tapped out years ago. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a significant ramp of new partnership teams being stood up, additional new partnerships. I think IDC even said something like 50% year over year, uh, increasing the quantity of business to business partnerships that are yeah. being formed. That is mind-numbing. We saw this actually, I don't think we've shared this publicly, but we saw this in our own data. I think our network um, grew, I think it was by somewhere between four and five X in 2021, in terms of like the number of companies on the network, the number of partnerships on the network grew between eight and nine X. So, wow. the, you know, not only were there all these additional companies coming on the density of the network, like the average number of partnerships per company on the network just absolutely exploded, even relative to the, the growth of the network itself. So, uh, we're seeing that play out as well, just in, in, yeah. in the ecosystem of CrossFit. Yeah. I think, you know, some of the things that we're going to, have to solve for, number one, I mean, it kind of just reminds me of like professional sports, you know, I mean, are companies outbidding for the great quarterback, you know, or the strong pitcher. And yeah. I think, you know, we, we see some of that now, but more importantly, what needs to happen is how, how do we build the farm system? I mean, how do companies, organizations, how do they build, build some bench strength around partnerships because it's not as easy as grabbing somebody and saying hey you're you're now a partnering professional uh, it's all about relationships and providing value to others and you're anointed and, and go forth there's <laughs> there's high attrition because there's high failure uh, for, hmm. for a lot of reasons uh, but uh, I think we've got some some work to do in this area but there's no doubt there's you know, you know massive amount of opportunity here for professionals. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I think it's a, it's a confluence of things, right? It's 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 everything that you say about the the supply and demand characteristics, and uh, you know that potentially allowing people to pop their heads up and see new opportunities. I do think this new wave of technology that supports people in partnership roles is kind of creating a different ROI story for companies around how they can invest in partnerships, which furthers the supply demand indifference because there's more demand. Uh, uh, and then, frankly, the macro environment where funding got super hot in 2021. And in, in a lot of companies, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that partnerships is a little bit of a luxury area that you can embark upon if things are really going well. And if every company on the planet has $100 million in the bank, they all feel like they're doing really well. Uh, and, and they feel like, hey, this could be a potential uh, area of leverage that, that we should make sure we don't pass up on. So you combine all that with the work from home uh, revolution that's happening and uh, folks kind of being aware that their, their options are, are bigger than ever uh, and changes in compensation, having people pop their heads up and say, hey, I think I can make more elsewhere. Uh, it, it just becomes a perfect storm. I don't think we'll ever see a number this high again uh, in terms of like number of people switching in, in one year. Uh, I'd expect to see some stabilization, but um, you know, this, this space, like you say, there is something to, uh, you know, people not sticking around for the longest amount of time because it's so, so dynamic. Yeah. Awesome. Bob, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing the insights and, uh, man, I look forward to, uh, jumping on the next, uh, next show with you. Cool. Good deal. Yeah. Great to catch up. Always a pleasure. And thanks for the airtime. Keep up the good work. Cheers. You too. 
Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Partnernomics Show. Don't forget to subscribe to get the newest episodes at thepartnernomicsshow.com. Special thanks to our sponsors, Iolite. To learn more about Iolite, visit iolitepro.com. And Partnernomics, the science of partnering. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics courses, coaching programs, and consulting services, visit Partnernomics.com. See you on the next episode.